Okay, so the topic, and I just chose it based on um, some, I guess a couple of weeks ago, the talk was on rebirth, reincarnation. And so after last Sunday, as we were walking out, there's a little bit of discussion of metaphysics. I think Katie was asking something about metaphysics and Zen. I don't know. But anyway, I thought, there's my topic. <laughs> um, so, and especially with a small group, feel free to, to interrupt, you know, and ask a question, a little interactive. So, um, the first thing I like to do is start with definitions, you know, to make sure we're all talking about the same thing, which is a little tricky with metaphysics, because when you look in the dictionary, there's like, you know, five different definitions. But the one that I think, um, for me, is the most intuitive and the most obvious is just to look at the two roots of the word meta, meaning beyond, and physics, meaning what's observable and, and measurable. So what's beyond observable and measurable. The dictionary also has the one that I thought was the closest to what we're talking about is speculation upon unanswerable questions. Uh, two key, key things there, you know, unanswerable and speculation, you know, which can be endless. So the examples that would be, you know, deities and gods, afterlife, soul, rebirth, reincarnation, heaven and hell, you know, those kinds of things. And so the question is, or the question that I posed to myself, or the kind of that I heard last week was, so what is the role of, of metaphysics in, in Zen and Buddhism? And so those questions in, in Buddhism that comes up specifically are things like, you know, rebirth or reincarnation. Uh, what is it that is reborn or reincarnates? Is there a soul? Um, and then where does it go? And those things kind of build on each other. And, and you can start this endless chain and cycle of questions, you know, that, that ultimately we can't really answer. So you can get into quite a quagmire. So that's... Um, the question I wanted to address, and to look at, I always kind of like, it's like a, you know, here we're in an engineering school, so I can talk about boundary value problems, right? So um, I like to look in terms of what are the boundaries, what are the far extremes of the discussion? So on the one end of the, the discussion regarding metaphysics, people, you know, some people say that is, that is, that is what brings meaning to life, you know, understanding these issues, that's, that's the most important thing. And so living in, in our culture and in, in a Judeo-Christian culture, What's familiar to many of us is the Apostles' Creed. You know, the version that, that I, I said in church where I was growing up was, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, uh, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and it talks about the resurrection and, and you know, a whole lot of, you know, big, big metaphysical elements right there. I said, okay, you know, just in case anybody was unsure about this, this is what we believe. Okay, so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is the one that says that's all superstitious nonsense. It it it, um, it just flies in the face of uh, scientific method and rational thinking, and it has no place in modern society. Okay, so those are the two extremes. And just to be clear here, I'm not trying to take necessarily <laughs> one position or the other. I'm trying to frame the discussion. So. Um, our culture, I think, is kind of uh, 
uh, a split personality when it comes to this. We live in one of the most scientifically advanced cultures on the planet. Every day we benefit from technology, from science, um, uh, from rational thinking and the scientific method. But we also have, you know, if you look at the, the Christian cultures on the planet, you know, the American subset is one of the most fundamental. Um, look at, you know, the political debates now, how one party or the other at any time in the election cycle is trying to appeal to that segment of the population. So there's a very strong uh, emphasis in that direction as well. So we kind of, we kind of rock it back and forth, you know, Sometimes it's like during the, the, the days of the week we're, we're on one end of the spectrum and on the weekend we're on the other end of the spectrum. So I think it's an important question. So regardless of where you are on that spectrum, I think we can, can safely say that it's kind of a ubiquitous topic and in multiple cultures and multiple times and in multiple religions, these questions come up again and again and again and again. So you can't deny that it seems to be important. So given that it's ubiquitous, we have to ask ourselves why? Why is it ubiquitous that these topics come up again and again? So I would propose, there may be other, other answers, but I think there are two possible explanations. One is that, that they represent something real and true, some kind of transcendent mystery that that you know, not all of us can immediately recognize. You know, some can and others can't, but enough can to recognize that there's something real and true there. Or um, they are an effort to deal with human characteristics that say we are not good at dealing with uncertainty, ambiguity, with infinities, either great or small, the cosmos or you know the atomic scale or um, uh, unanswerable questions. You know, I think psychology <laughs> probably has a lot to say about that. You know how we don't, we don't deal well with uncertainty and not having an answer to a question. So, you know, we can, we can look at it from those two ways. And I think, again, we have to appreciate, again, whichever end of the scale you're on there, we have to appreciate that it's important either one of those is an important thing to address, okay? So uh, to deny that, if you were here for the talk last week where we were talking about um, the 10th grave precept, um, do not defame the three treasures, basically trying to deny the reality of some aspect of our existence is, is kind of sticking your head in the sand. It's denying one of the three treasures not to do that. Um, so we have to accept that it's an important question. So that's kind of the, the introduction, maybe a long, wordy introduction. I'm not very good at the Zen short, pithy stories. <laughs> so what does Buddhism tell us? And um, again, a technique that I used last week that I use once in a while is to look at it from kind of three ways, from the, the words and dogma level, you know, always go to the sutras and see what does it say, or to go from the practice um, the action level, and then to the, the deep understanding and the wisdom level. So I want to I want to kind of do that again. And on the words level, I'm not going to focus on that a lot. We could go into 
the, the sutras. And you can find lots and lots of passages um, with uh, supernatural elements. You know, upon the Buddha's uh, enlightenment, his awakening, he remembered all of his past lives. You know, that's that's in there. Um, lots of discussion of ending the cycle of rebirth. Okay. Um, you could find, if, you were, if you're looking for passages, you can find lots of passages in support. You can also find some passages that kind of uh, skirt the question or throw it into doubt. When you read, I was reading the, some of the Diamond Sutra recently, and people were asking about the realms of existence. And he said, you know, for whatever realms of existence might exist, you know, he left it kind of conditional, neither confirm nor deny, to use a, a government phrase, you know. Um, and you can find other phrases like that where uh, it's also in the Diamond Sutra. He, there's a, a phrase that's repeated very often where to, to believe this bum, 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 would be to fall under the fault of acknowledging or believing in uh, a self, a life, and a soul, um, which on the one hand, you know, that was an error, but on the other hand, he puts self and soul in the same sentence, in the same category. So obviously a self exists on one level and on another level it's not independent. So again, ambiguous. I don't want to get too bogged down in the words. The point is that I think if you try to look for passages, you're faced with ambiguity again. Okay, if you look at a words and dogma level. And different schools of Buddhism you know, look at this in a different way. Um, so the, the final thing I would want to say about stories is that a lot of times stories are apocryphal. Um, and I, I forget the exact meaning of the root. The apocrypha in the biblical stories means like the supporting stories. So in the, in the Christian tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, and in many, many others, you can, you can roughly categorize the, the, the scriptures and the sutras as what the teacher said directly, the teacher or the prophet or, or whomever. And then there's all the stuff, there's the stuff about the teacher or the prophet. Okay. So, um, and a lot of times the stuff about the teacher were added later. If you talk, if you look into all the academics and the, and the, you know, the studies about that, and that's not my area of expertise, but I remember reading these. Um, where that's where a lot of the, the metaphysics and the miracle stories come into play to kind of beef up, okay, this person's really, really important. That's one perspective. On, on another perspective, you know, that's the meat of it. Well, if you take out all the metaphysics, then it's meaningless. Um, we just passed Easter, the resurrection. If you, if you don't believe the resurrection, then the whole tradition is meaningless. Um, in the, if we apply that approach to the Buddhist teachings, if we look at, okay, what did the Buddha teach? By that, I mean the, the, the doctrinal elements, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the, the Six Paramitas, and things like that. Instead of what was said about him, let's see what those say. Okay? If you look at the Four Noble Truths, it talks about the existence of Dukkha, the the cause of dukkha being attachment, the possibility of an end of dukkha, and that that is achieved by the Eightfold Path, 
and you look at the elements, elements of the Eightfold Path, they're all mundane. All things that happen on, in this realm. Nothing supernatural, nothing metaphysical contained in those. Okay. And I think that's, that's fairly a, a, a non-controversial statement. You know. um, it's when you start adding the flowery words and stories around those where the, the, the stuff, which are basically a lot of cultural elements of the day, get, get wrapped up into it. Um, because all of the, the supernatural elements that are mentioned in the sutras are things that were prevalent in Axial Age India at the time of the Buddha. That was the culture and the language and the, the people that he was talking to. So obviously he would use the references that, that they understand. So the question is, in my mind, are those relevant? And by relevance, I mean, does an answer to a metaphysical question, is there a heaven or a hell, is there a soul? If you had the answer one way or the other right now, does it make a big difference in terms of what we would do right now? Okay. And, I, you know, I guess maybe my, the way I frame the question kind of presupposes my answer because if you, if you believed that there is a soul and an eternal life and a heaven, then the answer to that question, I guess, is absolutely it makes a difference, you know. Um, but on the other hand, if those don't exist, then, then it doesn't make a difference. But I would also posit that really, when you, when you look at any tradition from the basis of compassion, the way you deal with other people right here and right now does not change whether you're a Christian and believe in an eternal soul and in and, and heaven, or um, as I'm positing here in the Buddhist tradition, uh, there is no separation, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. In terms of having compassion for others and the way you work with others and deal with others right now, there's really no difference. So that's my point about, that's what I'm trying to say about relevance. Does it really make a difference? It's like, you know, uh, for a quick metaphor, and we'll talk about a more famous one later. If you've been outside in the summertime, you know, participating in sports or working or whatever, and you're hot and you're tired, and you want to sit down, and there's a big tree, Raleigh, I guess, oak tree, uh, sit down in the shade of the oak tree and lean against it and rest. Does it matter? Do you start asking, gee, I wonder how this tree got here, and, you know, did it evolve from other trees, or was, you know, and did the type of tree change over the millennia, or was it created as is, and was there a first tree, or, you know, well, do you want to do that, or do you want to enjoy sitting and resting in the shade of the tree right here, right now? I really don't care how it got here, you know, other than that maybe I want to make sure there are other trees for others in the future so that they can relax and enjoy the tree, you know. Um, so that was a little tangent about is the question relevant? And Zen is always about being eminently practical. Just like in the beginning, I said, well, we can fold up this, this backpack, you know, and, and use it to boost the cushion a little bit. And it's not elegant or pretty, but it might work, you know. Zen's like that. It's about being practical. What, what works? And I, and I posit that 
That's exactly what the Buddha was trying to do in the Four Noble Truths. What's the situation right now? The situation right now is that all um, things that arise pass and that there's suffering associated with that and that, that comes from our attachment to wanting things to be otherwise. And what's the practical solution to that? So instead of going on with my responses, I wanted to um, give you some other responses. So you've heard me in the Zen tradition, we talk about Master Dogen quite a bit and some others, but a lot of Dogen. And this, uh, he wrote a, a treatise called Bendo Wa, which means a, a talk on the uh, wholehearted practice of the way. This book is titled The Wholehearted Way. It is a translation of Bendo Wa with uh, commentary by Shohak Okumura. Um, and just a little bit of, uh, excuse me, excuse me. It was translated by Shohak Okumura, and the commentary is by his teacher, Uchiyama Roshi. And in, in Buddhism in general, and Zen in particular, we're very big on lineages. And just one point here to kind of make it a little bit more relevant, a little bit more personal, and um, to show how small in some ways the Zen community is. My teacher is Taiyun Michael Elliston Roshi. He was given transmission, formal transmission. Actually, he received it in three lineages. It's an interesting story. But one, uh, um, Okamura Roshi was one of the teachers who gave him transmission. His teacher was Uchiyama, who did the commentary in this book. And his teacher was Sawaki Roshi. And those names come up here in what I want to read. So in Bendowa, um, Dogen gives a description of uh, practice, and then he answers questions. Basically, you know, just like we're doing now, you know, where we have a talk and then we open it up for questions and answers, and somebody was over in the corner recording it. And so, there's if you get a copy of this, it's question number ten, and I'm not going to read the whole question because it's kind of long and verbose, as these things tend to to become over the year, kind of over the years, kind of formulaic. Um, there's a long question about what about a soul. Now, Dogen, I'm going to tell you before I read this, he didn't pull any punches. He was one of those crusty old masters. You know, he, he told you <laughs> what he thought very clearly. So, you know, remember when you hear some of these terms, it's not me necessarily talking, it's him. So the question was about the soul. And his reply, these are Dogen's words, the idea you have just mentioned is not Buddha Dharma at all, but the fallacious view of Seneca. It was a, a separate teacher and a separate... Um, non-Buddhist tradition. This fallacy says that there is a spiritual intelligence in one's body which discriminates love and hatred or right and wrong as soon as it encounters phenomena and has the capacity to distinguish all such things as pain and itching or suffering and pleasure. Furthermore, when this body perishes, the spirit nature escapes and is born elsewhere. Therefore, although it seems to expire here, since the spirit nature is born elsewhere, it is said to be permanent, never perishing. Such is this fallacious doctrine. However, to learn of this theory and suppose it is Buddha Dharma is more stupid than grasping a tile or a pebble and thinking it is a golden treasure. Nothing can compare to the shamefulness of this idiocy. So like I said, he was, <laughs> he was pretty adamant in his view. Okay. He goes on. Since I cannot avoid this issue, I must now further bestow compassion and extricate you from this false view. 
you should know that fundamentally in Buddha Dharma it is affirmed that body and mind are one essence and material form are not two and you should have no doubt whatsoever that this is similarly understood in India and China remember this was back in medieval Japan not only that you should completely awaken to life and death as exactly Nirvana you can never speak of Nirvana outside of life and death and by that he means when that phrase life and death it means in this existence right here right now so that was you know 700 years ago an ancient master so to speak I want to read a more modern one this is Thich Nhat Hanh you all know him this book is Zen Keys it came out what, over a decade ago I think and this is Thich Nhat Hanh talking he's also quoting the Buddha at one point he says the Buddha always told his disciples not to waste their time and energy in metaphysical speculation whenever he was asked a metaphysical question he remained silent so he wasn't quite as <laughs> direct as Dogen he just, he just you know, let it slide um, instead he directed his disciples toward practical efforts questioned one day about the problem of an infinity of the world the Buddha said whether the world is finite or infinite infinite limited or unlimited the problem of your liberation remains the same another time he said and this is a famous metaphor you may have heard this is the Buddha talking suppose a man is struck by a poisoned arrow and the doctor wishes to take out the arrow immediately suppose the man does not want the arrow removed until he knows who shot it his age his parents and why he shot it what would happen if he were to wait until all these questions were answered the man might die first life is so short it must not be spent in endless metaphysical speculation that does not bring us any closer to the truth and that is Buddha's response very very often is just as uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said he, he just said I'm not gonna answer that I'm gonna because that's not what I'm talking about if you want answers to that you need to go talk to somebody else because I'm concerned with our daily life right here right now so I've got one more for you in a typical um, very very brief Zen summary so uh, Uchiyama Roshi's uh, teacher Sawaki Roshi said something and this is this is Okamura Roshi quoting Uchiyama Roshi quoting Sawaki Roshi <laughs> Sawaki Roshi said someone asked me whether ghosts exist in the world or not people who ask such questions are ghosts and then <laughs> Uchiyama Roshi went on to say I agree with Sawaki Roshi so given those replies what do we do and I really don't I really feel that very sincerely that that for me personally spending a lot of time on speculation is, is not very helpful it doesn't help me deal with the angst that I have sometimes or things that I know push my buttons and you know and I need to look deeply into that and learn how to deal with it and all 
You know, it's not the medical metaphysical questions that, that give me solace there. I find that the practice, if I follow the practice um, uh, outlined in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, are what bring me solace and comfort. So I would say we, we need to practice letting go of our need for answers because that's an attachment. That's one of the things that generates dukkha. That's one of the things that, you know, the Four Noble Truths tell us cause suffering. We need to learn to let go of our attachments. And the Eightfold Path helps us to learn to identify those, helps us learn how to deal with those. And to relax into dwelling in the, the ambiguity of, of human life. We just face it. There are some things that we aren't going to know. And living in the moment and not the hypothetical. Um, and in that way, actually, that's how we learn to experience nirvana here and now. Back to one of my favorite sayings, you know, not two, no separate thing. There is no separate nirvana. Nirvana is here and now if we can awaken to it. So, given my love of, of poetry, I'm going to quote one more thing and then we're done. Um, this is uh, the uh, song of Zazen, Zazen Wasan, by Hakuin. Hakuin is... Um, is uh, very important in the Rinzai tradition. He kind of revitalized the Rinzai school. And I'm not going to read the whole poem, just the first two lines and the last six, because they emphasize the immediacy of practice. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice. Outside us, no Buddhas. And he goes on to talk about the practice in samadhi. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. So... I hope it came across clearly, but you know the whole point is don't be focusing and dwelling out there somewhere. It's right here, right now. This is assuming that there are that there isn't an ultimate answer, but how can we know that there is no answer is like true? How can you assume that there is no answer is the truth? That the response to everything is it's Oh, um, well, that's a, that's a good question. And I think maybe I skipped an example that I had when I was talking about um, the possibilities of the answers to the questions. Um, let me try and rewind in my head. The... So I was talking about ubiquity, the ubiquitousness of these questions. So one of the points I wanted to make about that, and thank you for bringing it up because I, I kind of forgot. I try not to just read my notes and then I skip things. Is that two, two aspects. Ubiquity does not guarantee validity. 
Just because a question is asked everywhere all the time doesn't mean, or an answer to that question doesn't necessarily mean that it's valid. And the example here is, one of my favorites is, you know, there was a time when everybody on the planet, or the vast majority of people on the planet, thought the Earth was flat. And that belief did not make the Earth flat, right? And then even later, uh, when they thought they knew the Earth was round, they still thought it was the center of the universe. Well, it wasn't the center of the universe just because everybody believed that. So ubiquity does not imply validity. On the other hand, to come to your point, if I understood your question right, um, lack of proof does not imply invalidity. Okay, Just because you can't prove something doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. It just means that maybe we don't know enough yet. Maybe we, we can't you know, uh, see far enough yet. Uh, both from the aspect of uh, physics, and I'll give a, f some physics examples, because um, uh, I, I studied physics in school, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. There was a question, an unanswered question, and we were trying to come up with answers, and granted this was with the scientific method, but still, he, he proposed a solution, and we couldn't prove it. Lack of proof didn't mean it was invalid. It was later proved to be valid. Okay, but the next theory, you know, it may not be valid. So, um, lack of proof does not show invalidity. As we mentioned in the in the lecture last week, we only understand as far as the eye of our practice and understanding allows us to see. You remember the the story about standing up in the boat in the ocean? You only see the circular horizon, although the ocean is much greater. So we can't suppose to know all the answers. So that's why Dogen may have been a little bit extreme, at least in his wording maybe, about saying, you know, there absolutely, positively is no soul. Um, what Thich Nhat Hanh said about the Buddha's comments is probably a little bit closer to the mark and it's just, it's just not productive. If we cannot answer the question, if we cannot prove it true or false, what is the value in spending time on it? So I've been talking so long now, I think I might have forgotten. Did that address your question? Um, I just think it's important to question. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes, sometimes. Then I ultimately always end with, I don't know. I don't mm -hmm. know. There, there's, I guess I agree with whatever, but I still question because I see, I see the value in it. What if there is an answer to be mm -hmm. had, you know? Then what? What then? Mm -hmm. Like you know how some questions are resolved, and then it's followed by another question, and then another question, and then like ultimately, then, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, the value of questioning, the value of being open, of not accepting a certain doctrine or dogma just because it's told to you, right? Um, I think I might have mentioned a little bit earlier that I find the, the Buddhist practice to be rather cyclical. That the more you practice, the more you investigate, the more you understand, and then you go back and it, and it feeds on itself. And that's the way it's intended to be. That's why part of the, the Eightfold Path is meditation. It's, it's trying to let go of preconceived notions to be open to 
direct experience and, and deeper understanding. And then, obviously, the Buddha thought and, and practitioners, other practitioners have thought that what they see in that reinforces the Buddha's message. Um, but the point is, you have to do the work yourself. It is a process of questioning. It is a process of, um, you'll hear often in, in Zen circles, great faith and great doubt. And that's not faith in, in maybe the standard Judeo-Christian terms, but faith in the process. The faith that, you know, if I continue the process, um, I will come to a deeper realization. Um, and the doubt is, you know, not to take anything on face value, on doctrine, but to test its validity for yourself. Is that... Am I just dancing around your question, or am I getting closer to? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, the 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 point is not to deny. As, as we talked last time about, you know, the use of different words and metaphors, you know, we could be using different words and really be talking about very close to the same thing. So it's not worthwhile to spend a lot of time debating about that. But to look at, is it helpful? That's why the story about the guy who got shot with the arrow, you know, what we need to do right now is take care of the arrow and then maybe later you can worry about, you know, who shot it and, and why and all that. Um, and those might be valid questions for helping later, for helping others. Um, but in terms of immediate needs, always look at what's most helpful and what's not helpful. Because we have limited time. Okay. Yeah, ponder for a bit. And come back again. Ask again. <laughs> I'll ponder for a bit. Maybe I'll come... Anybody else? Okay. No, I, don't. I really appreciated the message. So I think like with our reincarnation discussion, we kind of got lost in the metaphysics. <laughs> and oh, wouldn't you say so? And and the question is, was that worthwhile? I mean, you know, it could be, and it might not. The question in Buddhism is always, you hear this phrase a lot, skillful means. What is skillful means or not? And and what these masters were saying is that you know, spending a lot of time on metaphysics isn't really so, so skillful or helpful. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'll see if... Uh, this worked and if it did then I'll see about